Welcome to the Veterinary Success Podcast. I'm your host, Isaiah Douglas. Today, I am so happy to be joined by Kim Fish, who does a lot in the world of veterinary medicine. She is the VP of Veterinary Products for Rhapsody, a veterinary consultant for AVC Success, and the owner of the Veterinary Technical Institute. Kim, welcome aboard. Thanks for uh, coming on. Thanks, Isaiah. You got everything right there. As we get things kicked off, I know it's going to be kind of a wide-ranging discussion, but you've done practice consultant for a number of years. You kind of narrowed your focus to kind of working with the people that you really enjoy and some of the clients that you've built those long-lasting relationships with. But I wanted to ask you, in all the different years and having those conversations with people, what's the one like favorite question or a go-to that you really like to ask clients that has given you the best responses and helped kick things off and maybe why that question has been so powerful or helpful? Yeah. The question that I really want to know that kind of helps me know, like get guided on how we want to proceed with consulting or if they're going to do a practice sale or whatever it might be is really understanding what their vision for the future is. You know, are they looking at preparing their practice to sell? Is it going to be a quick turnaround? Are they five, 10 years out? What do they want to do once they sell? Are they going to stay on for some period of time? And then we can kind of backtrack to what do we want to accomplish in the next year? So sometimes it just helps them to create, what does that look like for themselves? There's so much around that as far as just planning or maybe giving them some freedom too, to feel like they can have some work-life balance in there. So there's a lot of conversations that come out of a question about just what is the vision for the future? Do you find that most people have a clear vision for the future? Is it hard for them to articulate what that looks like? Or is it usually like, you know what, I know exactly where I want to take this. This is what I need. And I know you can help me to get there, but this is the way it looks. Or is it, I don't know, I've just done what I've always done. I think they're kind of all over the board with how clear they are on what that plan is. But when it really comes down to it, there's a fear of this is a business they have built. And what is the future for it? What is going to happen with it? Where are they in that picture? And so I think it's sometimes something that they actually need like a conversation around to just help them kind of flesh that stuff out and also to give them some freedom to feel like they can start planning those things. It's okay to start to part from what they've been doing for so many years. So it's hard for a lot of them, but that's okay. That's part of the conversation. Yeah. And I've talked about other times, but I think the identity is as far as like what you do, like, again, when I introduced you at the start of the podcast, it wasn't what your passions are and what's most important to you. It was what you've done from a career perspective. And I think so many times we take on that title as far as what our career is as a part of who we are. So it can be hard for that to change or adjust. So I think that's a really interesting comment that I've seen as well, just with conversations with clients and people over time. Yeah. And I think understanding that it doesn't have to be like a clear cut decision. It's not like they sell and they go and retire to Tahiti or something, even though that sounds like a lot of fun, but maybe there's something that's in that space in between that will make them feel more comfortable about even thinking about the future. Like they don't have to just jump out of it. They can transition and transition on their own terms too. Yeah. I wanted to really dive in because this was a fascinating story with your development, your entrepreneurial spirit, as far as what Rhapsody looked like in your journey to how it was built. The fact that it was kind of stealing your thunder, it was sold on the first day it actually launched. Can you share that and explain why you built it, how all that came together? Because I think it is fascinating. Sure. Well, there's lots of steps that got up to uh, actually... Yeah. The day at VMX when I was in my little exhibit booth there. But, you know, my background with education just gave me so much insight to what was happening at the practices, which was how I kind of migrated into doing the consulting for the practices. It was almost like the plan was to take the practices through school so that they could 
really look at the integration of the medical planning that they do. You know, how are they going to do their workups? How are they going to institute some of the the medical directives they have, and then combining that with the business side of everything. So in there, they're using their PIMS, their practice management software. So I spent a lot of years watching them use the software, sometimes fumbling around with the software, using only 20% of it. And there's a lot of things I could see were slipping through the cracks. And if we could only create more automation to some of the workflows that they had, it would really help to keep things from not being charged make sure that we we're completing our medical record keeping. I'm really big on the legalities of medical records. I feel like people have a tendency to kind of omit things that should be in there. So we need to automate as much as we can. And so it's just kind of like getting to the point of we need to build a better mousetrap, I guess. So I had developed software. It took a lot of years of planning and then about 14 months of code work with a development team. And part of what I think the intention was to differentiate it from the other PIMs that were out there was really about that we could standardize some of these processes and make it a cleaner workflow for people. And at the end of the day, we're also going to have a whole lot better data because I'm sure we're going to talk about clean data here in this conversation too. But when we can do that, then we can have so much more insight to one, how we practice medicine and two, why are we getting the numbers that we have? when it comes to those business metrics. So part of what I really wanted to accomplish was to automate some of these workflows too. So it was really exciting to be there at VMX on my first day. And I got to talk to so many people, got really good feedback. I had come up with an idea with exam findings that we could do something we ended up calling quick click, but breaking it down by body systems. And instead of having to document and paragraphs what we're finding, to actually have all of this already pre-created so they can just click on the different elements of the findings and record it that way. It also helps to make it a lot faster for interpreting the data later. But I think that kind of attracted Michael Hyman when he came over to my booth and we had a conversation that day and the next day and he was wanting to build his own PIMS. So here I am today, part of Rhapsody. And we used a lot of the concepts that I had with my original software system But it also gave me the freedom to think even bigger, having this whole big team behind us and the level of development that they had was just really amazing. So being able to really think about if I could do anything I wanted with Tim's, what could it be? So it's been a great process going through this and having a software system be built to this level. There's so much infrastructure that people don't realize it's in there to help it really stand out from the other systems and make it so that we can have some very advanced We're going to talk about machine learning, I'm sure, in this conversation, too, but kind of advanced technology that takes it beyond just standard medical record keeping and invoicing. Yeah. And you talked about two different things, which was clean data and then being able to standardize and make yourself more efficient. I love the idea of having stuff that's kind of pre-populated that if you're going to be typing this in over and over and over and over again, have something that's there that you can automatically select. It's ready to go and it continues to move forward. That way you don't have the variability between one person and someone else on the way that they maybe take notes or do different things. But also with that, having clean data and how that can help drive better decisions. Can you kind of share where, okay, you purchased, acquired, merged into Rhapsody. Where do you think the data collection, but also the opportunities for that in the future can be? And maybe where are we at today compared to where it was, call it five or 10 years ago as well? Well, where we are today with a lot of the PIMs, because with my consulting firm, we do collect reports out of all these other systems and we have to put it through our own 
processes in order to clean it as best we can. But there's still a lot of extrapolating to try to interpret what's going on with it because people just don't have that kind of standard approach to how they want to charge. And definitely if there's anything that's not just on the side of charging, but how about on the side of like, what are they finding? We have all this medical data that's there too. And to be able to combine the interpretation of how medicine is being practiced along with how we are charging and being kind of complete with our workups, there's something so valuable in that. And that's where I feel like we're just so stunted with the other PIMS as far as not having a really go-to way of doing things. And here on the human side, they do that all the time. So there is a global set of findings and diagnoses that exist out there. It's called SNOMED CT. And in there is a subset for veterinary medicine and AHA had parsed it out. And it hasn't really been used to its full capacity, I don't believe in the past. So we have taken that, we have adapted it and improved it as much as we can. And I'm sure it's going to still have more iterations of improvement. But by having this code set for just, let's say on the medicine side, for the findings and diagnoses, we now can create these reports, we call medical insights, and we can watch correlation patterns, even down to the doctor of what are they finding? How often are they recording these things? What are the ratios of certain findings to certain diagnoses? And there's something so insightful about that. And then from there, what are we doing about it, right? We're finding stuff, we're diagnosing things. There's probably a diagnostic plan that was underneath that. But let's take it to the next step, which is the treatment plan. This will help us really develop the proper kind of treatment plans we want to focus on. And so we're going to be so much more complete with our medicine by just knowing what we've been doing to begin with. I love that. When you think about just raising the bar, the standard of care, how you do things by taking the insights of, okay, where there's five or six of us in here, how are we diagnosing things? How are we seeing things? And then what does that lead to as far as treatment planning to be better at what you do? And how can you harness data to do that? Right. I love that. And you brought up something that I did want to chat on. And I know it's a tough subject. And I think I've had this conversation with a number of different people that veterinarians probably don't charge what they're worth a lot of times. But how do you think about pricing and charging and using data to drive those decisions instead of just, well, so-and-so charges this and we're going to charge X, Y, Z? How do you become more data aware when it comes to pricing and charging and figuring that out? Yeah, that's such a great question. And I think you have to look at it in almost three different pieces. One is all the hands-on things you do, like the procedures. That has its own approach to how we want to charge for things. And a lot of people will just, like you said, what's the neighbor down the street doing? Or they literally throw the dart at the dartboard, you know. Then there's labs. And because there's this, <laughs> gosh, it's such a dichotomy, really, when it comes to pricing. You have all of the preferred lab pricing, which is so good. And then it's like, how do I charge off of that? Versus when it's just book rate, that's a little bit more straightforward and coming up with the right markup. And then you have inventory and it gets very complicated here because you could have like a higher dispensing fee and a lower markup or a higher markup and a lower, if any, dispensing fee. So it's like, which way do you want to go? I always prefer higher dispensing fee and a markup that's in line with that because we want to account for our time. But everyone's going to do it differently. And how are they going to interpret if that's the right way to go or not? So it comes down to the balance of how often are we performing it, or at least charging for it? And what is that charge, right? We want to maximize both of those things. So an example would be, let's say a culture and sensitivity that someone wants to charge a lot for because they use the same kind of markup on that lab as they do for other things. But what we find is that they just don't do as many of them. But if they brought the price down, then we expect them to do more. So it's always finding that balance. And 
we have so many really great reports in Rhapsody, but one of them is in the inventory usage. We actually have margins broken out in there because they can track cost and they can put their markups in there. So it's really a great perspective of understanding what our margin is versus how much are we actually performing this? Because that way they can say, I need to go and increase my markup or decrease my markup. So that really helps to simplify what could be a very complicated, it is a complicated question. How do we charge for inventory? You know, And I like a tiered approach for both labs and inventory too. Those reports can just be very meaningful as we're trying to interpret how well we're doing at the price points that we have. And making sure we're adjusting our prices as we go along too. That would be the place to start. Because a lot of people forget about it. Yeah, no, that is a fantastic answer. And I appreciate the kind of the breakdown of the three different steps there. And one of the things that interested me recently with the AVMA Economic Summit, they talked about and had a study, I think it was with Vet Success, of looking at different practices in the ATC versus how many visits and which one would be more profitable and trying to say which one is better. Because again, back to the pricing discussion and how do you best structure it's going to always almost equate to, well, it depends. And people hate that answer, but <laughs> it seems to be the answer that's there where so many people are trying to focus on having the highest transaction cost per visit versus seeing more visits. And it was interesting to see some of that data. I didn't know if you had seen anything or had any thoughts around that, or if you even know kind of what that research was pointing to, but it seemed that they were suggesting that maybe more visits was better, which was kind of counterintuitive, I think, to maybe what most people target for or think about. Yeah, and that's a really great question. It's almost like what we were just talking about where this is there's a balance, right? Your revenue comes from two things. It comes from the number of transactions that you have and what are you getting as your average for those two things. Your transaction count's going to be a lot more variable, so you have to really watch it very closely. We do trend analysis even by the day because within three days, your trend can kind of get away from you. So that one's a little bit more like you've got to really watch it. Your average charge is not so, you know, it doesn't have that ability to fluctuate quite as much. And you're going to have doctors that don't have as many appointments and they have a very high average charge. And of course, the ones that have lots of appointments and a lower average charge. I think it's going to depend on where do they feel comfortable? Because we had talked about that in the very beginning here, right? Like, are they feeling okay about even charging to begin with? So I say it's all about practicing good medicine. So there's something kind of deeper in here too. Do we want to just run the pets through the door and basics, basics, basics? Or do we actually want to make sure that we're being complete with protecting them if this is a well visit? Did we do all the things that we need to do? If this is a sick visit, there's a problem here. Are we being as complete as we could on the diagnostics, on the treatments? Are we charging for these things? Are we even recommending them to the client? So there's going to be a balance in there and you are going to have doctors you know, all across the board and one's going to be more comfortable on one end of the range than the other. But at the end of the day, it's about making sure that wherever they are, that they keep their average charge as consistent as possible, because if it's fluctuating a lot, they don't have consistency with the way that they're actually doing things in the practice. I try to keep my clients within a $10 swing, unless they're like over $220 on their average charge, then all the rules start to change. But especially if they're 180 and lower, they need to keep it in a certain range. And it's funny because if it's average is 165 160 to 170 is about where they should be, but it seems to go in these tiers of 165, 175. But again, charting it, looking at the data to understand how we're trending is going to be an important part of that. But keeping it stable is one thing because that helps us to make sure that we're practicing consistent medicine. And then we start layering on things like, are we charging appropriately? Can we increase some charges? 
Are we charging completely? Are there some things that we could do with our protocols to improve on how we're doing those things? And so that becomes important too. And another thing, getting back to what kind of visit this might be, I think it's important to look at the ratio of sick visits to well visits as well, because we can do something about getting that pet through the door. And that's where our well visit count comes in. From there, we want them to come back for that sick visit. If we're only capturing them on sick visits, what are we not doing right with the well visits? And then vice versa. So we should be looking at even more expanded data, especially when it comes to the relationship of the different kinds of reasons they're walking through the door and what are we doing when they come through the door. Again, fantastic. Thank you for walking through that. So much depth there and there's so many different areas that we can chat through, but I wanted to circle back a little bit to the conversation earlier just to finish out the idea around machine learning because I think it's fascinating because I've never heard anyone else talk about machine learning in veterinary medicine outside of our conversation. I've heard it more when it comes to kind of the financial world and there's machine learning that's being implemented on the investing front, which I think is, again, very interesting. But you had a really interesting stat on errors in labs. And I just wanted to hear your thoughts around machine learning, how you've seen it and maybe where that could be implemented within a clinic today. Yeah, there's so many parts of this that we can talk about. And I want to be specific about machine learning as opposed to AI, because people talk about that. And it sounds like such a general term. I don't know exactly what they always really think that the computer is going to end up doing for them. But when we can build the right kind of infrastructure, especially with the standardized approach, then it's not just that we have clean data, but the system has clean data, right? So we can start to start creating some correlation patterns, for instance, and surface things to help us get through things faster, kind of remind us of what would be important to do next, like next steps. So I'll get into that in a little bit more detail in just a second. But I wanted to talk about a place that people don't even think about where this could begin. And that's in the migration. What's happening in the system now versus what could be happening like if they migrated to Rhapsody? Because we start with it right there. We have a very complicated, amazing algorithm for taking like their current price list and matching it into our standardized structure that we have because we have all of the lab catalogs. So tens of thousands of labs are up there. We can take whatever the heck they've been calling it in their system and the machine knows how to read that and map it to the correct lab. So now we've got correct lab, especially for ordering. Same thing for inventory. We have a huge inventory catalog, including Eastern medicine is in there. We have a food catalog that's in there. And of course, all of the procedures and surgeries and are very specific. Alex Kruglick on our team comes from the pet insurance industry. So he really gets code structure and he is so committed to these catalogs. So it's amazing how well they've been developed and we're keeping them clean as much as people try to push us to do some things we don't necessarily want to do with them. But having them clean means that we can take this in this migration process really map correctly what they've been calling it. And believe me, there are so many errors, whether it's spelling or size of something or things that don't even exist anymore. And we can map it over. It even will read, you know, like uh, sales history and help to filter some of those things out. So now we've got such a nice clean list. So the machine has done all of this with the algorithm that's underneath. And so that's just the beginning of where machine learning can be. Getting back to the findings and the diagnoses, There is a reason for this. I mean, if you're surfacing a particular set of findings and then you're also surfacing diagnoses, the system can start to learn the correlation in there and create possibilities for like, okay, these are our next steps of what we want to do for like a diagnostic plan. 
and help to bring up what those ideas should be. Because otherwise, I know the doctors, they'll go do their research or they're kind of standard with what they want to do with their diagnostic plan. But when the machine actually knows what they've been typically doing and what is kind of best medicine to go from point A to point B and help to bring that to the surface so then they can make those selections so quickly and easily, then we're driving better medicine right there because then it gets to that next step, as I mentioned before, which is the treatment plan. And same thing there. So we can have algorithms around all of this kind of stuff. And it goes across the board. And especially for groups that have multiple practices, when they're trying to kind of see these medical insights happening across the board, just collectively for all their practices, I just think that's such important information in there. I mean, at the end of the day, we're here to practice medicine. And then the money comes out of it, which is great. But focusing on the medicine part of it is really key. And this is where the medical insights are driven from the fact that we can do machine learning with it. Do you see the medical insights and some of the data that can be pulled out of there as being something that can also then help with maybe even mentoring a young doctor that's still maybe struggling in an area or not reaching the same level as someone with a little bit more experience? Because just me being a non-DVM listening to that, that's where I would think it could be super helpful from a team dynamic. Oh, absolutely. And when we do the demos, I love hearing the doctors, even the doctors have been around for a long time, like, oh, wow, you've got that. I forgot all about that existed, right? So when you have it right in front of them, it really helps them start thinking about that stuff. And the lists are just tens of thousands of codes long. So it's really very, very comprehensive. And just a side note, I use it for my students at my school so that they can learn about the terminology and the findings and the diagnoses when they see it kind of in this more realistic application. It's so much easier for them to actually learn this stuff. So I'm kind of using it myself right now, but I would say any doctor, regardless of how long they've been around, can be really helpful. So yeah, that's a really good question. I like that idea of using it for guiding them and helping in the training process too. Yeah, absolutely. And we talked about in the intro, but the online kind of e-learning that you've done from Florida for years now, I think it's really interesting when you think about everything being done virtual, right? Like in the world of 2020, everyone's had to shift to virtual. What have you learned just from doing that historically over time has helped with people having the best experience to learn remotely and to really walk away with the key things? Because I've seen and I've heard other people say the same thing, you know, with this conference being virtual or this training being virtual, I don't get as much out of it. How do you keep people engaged or what suggestions would you have for someone that maybe is trying to do more virtual learning to stay engaged? You know, that's a question that has kind of resonated for me since the very beginning. When I started the school 25 years ago, We didn't have any distance learning schools in the state of Florida. This was the first one. And that was before we really had much technology. I mean, we were just functioning with the very beginning of teleconferencing, if that tells you kind of how (laughs) stunted we were with it. But I definitely realized in the very beginning that when people haven't kind of had the exposure to remote learning, learning from their home when they have all the other activities going on around them, it becomes harder to focus maybe unless they really have a plan of how they're going to end up tackling it. And I know it's a struggle for people. The world has changed in the last year. And so many of the meetings I have now, actually probably all of them, are virtual. And yet these people were ones I would go to their office or I would be virtual and they would be in their office. And so the whole dynamic has changed so much. So I'll tell you with our school, one of the things we do before they even start is a class on how to do virtual learning because they need to have that plan, that structure of I'm going to sit down at this time of day and this is how I know what I'm going to complete. So, I mean, I can speak from the education side of it, like to really have a concrete calendar of these are the steps I'm going to do on these days. This is when I'm going to do it. This is what I'm going to complete. It really helps with 
getting them to that end goal of getting graduated. So it's a much greater struggle when you have students that are at a distance and you're trying to drag them remotely. So you have to give them the skills to be able to do that and make them feel like they've got the support system in the background too, you know, that you are watching to make sure that they're completing. You're not just letting them slip through the cracks. If they need something extra that you're there, reaching out to them, keeping the engagement going with them. So that's from the school end of it. But I mean, just virtual learning goes across the board, even when we're doing training for the clinics, you know, the clinics want us to come in and do training. And right now we're having to do remote training or we don't really have any other options and we're used to it, but they're not necessarily used to it. So there is a transition for them too to go through that. And that's where we actually have to train them in how to be virtual learners too. So it's the same kind of thing, like here's the structure of how we're going to go about it and to keep them as engaged as possible. So one of the things is they're not just listening, they have to be doing. When they're doing, then they're much more like part of that whole process. They're more energetic about it and they're more likely to complete whatever task it is that we need them to do. So, and they're going to retain it so much better too. So that would be one of my biggest things I'd promote is just making sure that we're getting them to be engaged on their end and, and not just kind of sitting and taking notes and looking out the window, which can happen when they're not used to something like this. It's not a earth shattering thing that you just said, but I wrote it down as I'm sitting here taking notes, thinking about it of anytime that I'm doing anything, you know, CE or remote learning, it's like, make them do some activity with it. Try to have prompts, have questions, have things. I do maybe a little bit, but I probably don't do enough. And you do get the person that's probably turn off their video, they're doing something else. And you know, you have to try to keep them engaged. So I love that. So thank you for sharing that. I do like this question. And kind of as we wind down for today, you know, soapbox topic, and I've been asking guests, what do they wish more folks in veterinary medicine understood? And you can take that any way you want. It can be any topic. It doesn't have to be about what we talked about today, but it certainly can tie in as well. Oh my gosh, I get on my soapbox all the time. So we could spend like a whole day talking about soapbox topic, but I'm just going to pick one kind of coming off of some of the things that we were talking about earlier. And I think it has to do with, I want doctors to feel the freedom to charge for the medicine that they're practicing. It's how are they charging and what are they charging for? A lot of times they're afraid to even suggest certain things because they know that the client's going to just reject that idea and they don't like that feeling. They don't want to feel like they're being too pushy. And so the first thing is just to make them feel like they're worth the money. Their time is worth something. When we look at how they're charging for something, let's say it's surgery. And I say, well, what's your cost per minute that you're charging on this? And we go through it and gosh, they're charging something that just does not cover what they represent. They represent being a doctor and they're the only person that can do that as far as roles go with the practice. They have all of the education behind them and the cost of that education and the cost of the overhead, especially if this is their own practice, they're the doctor there, right? So they have a value per minute and it's really helping them to understand that they're worth that. So that's the first piece of it. And then it's about, okay, now we need to actually talk about the medicine with the client's whether they say no 500 times out of 600 times, whatever the ratio is, we still need to always be coming from the place of practicing best medicine. And it's hard. I know when your client is looking at you all sad and they go, I don't have the money and you get all of that. I get it. It's really hard to have those conversations. So what we want to do ahead of time is plan. It's like plan for how we want to charge. There should be a calculation, by the way. <laughs> That's why we talked about the prices before. I've got all sorts of calculations for how these things should come into be. So plan ahead of time. This is not put in something for $0 and then just ballpark it when they come in. 
I see that all the time. Charge 20 to one person and 40 to the other. Where's the consistency in any of that? If it's 40, it's 40. And don't discount it or have rules around what the discounts should be. Create those diagnostic plans. In Rhapsody, we have these multifunctional bundles and I love them. And I try to get our clients to really focus on getting these bundles put together. And based on what kind of event it is, those bundles will come right up for them. So it's really easy to go through and select them. So if this is an ear, well, ear workup is kind of not just diagnostic, but let's make sure that we've thought about that we have an exam in there. We have an ear cytology in there. We have a treatment plan in there. Put those things in the bundle so they're sitting there right in your face. If this is a wellness visit, and you would think that everybody does this, but I would say that the percentage is really not that high, actually, is to create these bundles or these groups where you have your exam, you have your vaccine options as far as core vaccines. Put the other vaccines, the lifestyle vaccines in there too. Put your labs in there. Put it all in front of you so you're really thinking about what is best medicine here? What does this animal need? And that's what we discuss with the client. Let them come back and say, no, I don't want to do that. And then we mark it in the record, preferably also on their invoice. We have a decline button. It's really easy to push. And then the client has the documentation that it was declined. They declined it, but it was still recommended to them. So we don't lose track of that either. So that way we're always in that habit of practicing consistent medicine. That gets back to keeping the average charge stable so that it can grow. So this is a big thing for me because I know the struggle that doctors go through that. I get it that they're afraid of charging. They're afraid of saying that the animal needs certain things. And we need to just like have the plan ahead of time, put that plan together, buy into it ourselves. Because if we don't buy into it, how are we ever going to get our clients to? And then really present it to the client coming from a place of need, like Fluffy needs this and explain why Fluffy needs it, because then they need to buy in. If we just say, here's an estimate and email it to them, they probably won't do anything with it. That's the way that the statistics go. But if we present it in a a particular kind of way, then it's going to be a lot more successful in getting them to be compliant and do these things. And at the end of all that, it means the animal actually got what it needed. Nobody shorted it anywhere. So that soapbox uh, (laughs) topic could go on and on and on. But Basically, it's about let's be okay with practicing good medicine. I love that answer. It's fantastic. It's well thought out. I don't say it nearly as well as you do as far as I just think people undercharge. I think veterinarians on average undervalue what they're worth, what their time's worth, their skill set, all those different things. So thank you for that. I know a lot of people will take away a lot of good insight from just that response. One thing that I wanted to do was start something new on the podcast for anyone that's listened. I've never done this, but I am swiping it from another podcast that I personally am a big listener of. And it's the host always asking the guest to say, hey, if you have a question for me that you'd like to ask, fire away. So Kim, any questions that you want to ask? Yeah, actually, this is great because I do have a question for you. And it just came up in a consult that I did yesterday. I have a feeling that I'm going to have a lot of questions around this as people start to realize, but with the PPP, if they were able to receive some funds, you know, around all this kind of COVID stuff, I assume that there's a tax liability to that. And what are some of your recommendations and how to handle that? Yeah. So first I'll qualify it with, I'm not a CPA, but with that being said, this is the question that I think everyone is asking because yeah, most veterinarians took the PPP loan, which they should have, because again, it was uncertain. You didn't really know, take what was being offered. So there's still some notices that came out in November that were letting people know that it is not deductible. So typically, you're going to be able to deduct those expenses that you would have for payroll, which is what the PPP loan was designed for is cover payroll. As long as it was 
75% or more, it was good. You get forgiveness. Well, that forgiveness then is, yeah, added back. So the suggestion that I would give someone is A, talk to your CPA, talk to the person that's helping you with that stuff. But look at the scenario if you go for forgiveness and you lose that deductibility as one thing, or if you just turn it into a loan, what does that look like if you don't go for forgiveness and you just take it out as the loan and what those terms would look like and which one's better for you from a tax perspective? Because the answer could be, it depends. I know we just were joking about that earlier in this conversation and I know everyone hates that answer. But for some practices, I do know that they are not going to go for forgiveness because it's actually better for them to just take it as a loan and pay back over time versus losing that deductibility. I would say depends on the cash flow and kind of where you are at. If you're one of the practices that had a fantastic year and have really grown through the pandemic and seen just busting at the seams type of growth, that's one thing. If you were struggling, I think the forgiveness is going to be more attractive for those that maybe haven't hit some of the growth targets that others have hit. And again, that's going to be very different depending on what part of the country you're in and where you're located. I don't know if that's the perfect answer, but I would just try to look at it with understanding what the impact is going to be from the bottom line and kind of where you can look at it. Because there's nothing wrong with taking the PPP loan as a loan and not getting the forgiveness because it is still inexpensive, cheap debt. I know people might not like holding debt and they want to be debt adverse, but it can still be very helpful to do that. So that would be my response on what to do there. But yeah, it's definitely a challenging topic and just got to spend a little time with it. Yeah, no, I think it's a really great way that you answered it too, because a lot of people did have such a successful year, especially if they just get engaged with, you know, things have changed. We have to do things differently and jumped in and and were there for all of their clients that were all of a sudden noticing things wrong with their pets, right? So the slow payback and low rate that they have on the loan, that makes a lot of sense. And then thinking about, well, what should they put the money to? Because maybe there's some investment options in there, right? Absolutely. And I know that I've kept you about as long as I promise I want to be respectful of time. But for those that are interested in connecting with you, learning more about Rhapsody, where would you send them? Where would you direct them to learn more? Well, they can find me on LinkedIn and see all of the things I'm part of on there. And so Kim Fish, F-I-S-H. And then if anyone wants to just reach out and chat with me, I just had a totally random conversation with someone earlier that was so much fun that had found me this way. But I have a Calendly link. It's Calendly, C-A-L-E-N-D-L-Y.com slash Kim Fish. And just book some time with me. I'm happy to talk about anything, whether it's consulting or just kind of what's happening in the veterinary space or the software, favorite football teams. I don't care what it is. Schedule with me and we'll have a good chat. Absolutely. I would highly encourage that. And I think anyone that listened through this entire episode definitely pulled some wisdom away and would be a good use of time to reach out. And I love Calendly. I use it as well for meetings. It's it's a great tool. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Isaiah. And I appreciate you reaching out because I think we originally met on LinkedIn or we did. connections. So we did. Yeah. Thank you so much. I appreciate it and uh, take care. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's show. The comments made on today's show should not be taken as investment, tax, or legal advice. All comments are for educational purposes only. You should consult your team before implementing anything. Isaiah Douglas is a partner of Vincere Wealth Management. Isaiah is registered in the state of Indiana, California, Texas. The biggest compliment you can give to this podcast is to share it with a friend. Reviews help the show get found, and Apple Podcasts is the platform that predominantly is how people listen to the show. If you have three to five minutes, you like the show, please head over to Apple Podcasts, give us an honest rating and review. That'll help more people find the show. For all of today's links and information, head over to veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. There you can subscribe via your favorite podcast platform so you won't miss another episode. Finally, 
If you'd like more information, insights, and have the ability for your voice to be heard and interact with show guests, join the private Facebook group. You can go to the Veterinary Success Podcast on Facebook or head over to the veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. Scroll all the way to the bottom where it says about your host and then click on the Facebook icon. That'll bring you into the Facebook group. I'll approve you. You'll be in. And then I'd love to hear your questions, feedback, and anything that you'd like to see added to the show. So with all that, thank you so much for listening. I'll be talking again to you soon.